0: Some of you, uh, my name is David Whited, and I'm a member here uh, at Emanuel, And as I mentioned, it is uh, my, uh, just a joy and a privilege to be able to bring the word this morning. Um, I have uh, three kids, um, and my youngest is five. And uh, her name is Margot, and uh, she's larger than life. Um, and Margot's class at preschool recently celebrated Dr. Seuss Week. Um, I think Dr. Seuss Week was kind of a thing that happened at a lot of schools. Uh, but we were we were really diving back into the Dr. Seuss during Dr. Seuss week. And I realized, um, one of the things I realized during Dr. Seuss week is that it won't be long uh, before I don't have a kid that I can read Dr. Seuss books to without like really coercing them into it anymore, right? Um, um, because she's growing up and like Dr. Seuss is still really relevant and, and beloved. Uh, but uh, I just, you know, I got a little sad as I was thinking about it. And so we pulled it out, and I I laid down with her one night, and we pulled out Cat in the Hat, and we were reading it. You know, Dr. Seuss creates these remarkable, memorable characters. Um, And one of my very favorite characters in all of the Seussian canon is uh, Fish um, in the Cat in the Hat. Um, Fish is one of my favorites. Um, I don't know if you remember the story, um, remember how the story opens, where there's these two children sitting in front of this big picture window, right? And mom is gone for the day. I don't know what's why mom is gone for the day. Things have changed, but evidently, when this book was written, it was fine for mom to leave for the day. Um, mom is gone for the day, and and fish is serving as some sort of guardian while she's gone, which is weird um, for a fish to be the guardian. Um, because he's just a fish. I mean, he's a talking fish, so that helps, right? Um, But he doesn't really have a whole lot of ability to do anything really particularly guardian-ish, because he's a fish, and he's in a bowl and some water, and he's got these tiny little fins. He doesn't even have hands, Uh, but he does know how to use his voice. Like, fish knows how to use his voice. So mostly what he does in the role of guardian all throughout this story is just announce impending disaster, (laughs) Um, You know, he's like, this is not going to go good. This is not going to go well. Like, every time something happens, Fish just announces that this is not good. Um, And so, as we all know, the story, how the story goes, like, cat in the hat, I don't know why, but all of a sudden he sees these two kids at a picture window and decides these two kids are bored. They need to have some fun. So he comes in, and he starts to just introduce fun, what he thinks is fun and mayhem, into the house. And the very first fun thing the cat in the hat does, fun thing, cat in the hat does, is a game... Do you remember this? It's a game called Up 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 with a stick. Okay? And he takes a stick and he puts a bunch of household items on top of the stick. And he takes fish in Fish's bowl and he puts fish on top of the household items on top of the stick. And and, and he's got fish like this. And, and fish makes this brilliant sort of pronouncement um, in this what seems to be sort of some sort of Piscine torture. Do you remember this? He 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 says, This is not fun. What you're doing here, this is not fun. Um, You said you were going to do fun, but this is not fun, and you can't do this while Mother is out. And the mayhem continues, and there's gowns flying, and there's thing one and thing two, and all of this stuff and fish all the while is just completely freaked out, and the thing that freaks him out most is he catches a glimpse of Mom coming down the sidewalk, and he announces, Mom is coming. We've got to get this thing back in order. But uh, then Cat in the Hat pulls this magic thing out he's got this magical order restoring machine that he drives into the house remember how this works and all of a sudden this magical order storing machine just like makes everything better and erases all the damage that's been done and it's just fantastic now i gotta be honest when i first first started reading this book i couldn't stand cat in the hat like just couldn't stand him fish and i were totally on the same page I, you know, I mean, Fish is there. He's just trying to keep order. He's trying to keep things from spinning out into chaos. And Cat in the Hat, it's like coming in, he's got no, he's got no boundaries, right? I mean, he just comes in and just makes everything go completely chaotic. Uh, but when you read this book night after night, right, liturgically, if you will, <laughs> it, you begin to f- sort of have a different reaction to Fish. Um, now that you know, like, night after night, you see the pattern, you know, where Fish gets freaked out, and then at the end, the magical order-restoring machine comes in. Like, after a while, like, when Fish freaks out in the beginning, inside, I'm kind of like, Fish, why are you so freaked out? Like, just, just enter into the fun, Fish. Go with it. It's, it's going to be fine. Cat has a magical order-restoring machine. I mean, relax, Fish. You don't have to freak out. Just, just enter into the fun. I don't know about you, um, but I experience this pattern in my own life over and over and over and over again. Um, When I'm faced with situations where I feel out of control, where I've been cast up into the atmosphere in a fishbowl on a stick, or even if I really, it isn't that desperate, if it's just something kind of small. When faced with situations where I feel out of control or I feel unsteady, I feel shaken, you know, knocked off center. My anxiety will spike, and, and I almost always, in those moments, feel like just sort of echoing Fish's sentiment, like, this is not fun. I want this to end. Even though I've seen the Lord care for me and my family, and I've seen the Lord care for others that I, that I love and know, time and time and time again... Even though I've seen him answer so many prayers and be so faithful in the midst of so many situations, I could start telling stories now and not wrap up by midnight. All the stories of of faithful provision I I have seen God do. When I'm faced, every time when I'm faced with a challenge that's bigger than me, I always need to be reminded about who God is in his nature and in his being and who I am as his son. Every time. Every time these kinds of things come up, I still put off center. And that's what's happening here in Psalm 125. And really, in this entire collection of the Psalms of Ascent that we've been walking through together in this season of Lent, so many pilgrims throughout the ages have loved this collection of Psalms for this very reason, because they offer profound change of perspective, profound salutary change of perspective when we feel anxious and afraid. When we feel knocked off center. Of course, um, we don't know exactly how these psalms were used um, in the life of God's people. Uh, some people have seen them as a collection of songs designed, to, as we've talked about, designed to be sung uh, on the way, uh, on the steps of the temple, because the number of these psalms mirror the number of steps. And so some people think like you'd sing one and move up the next step and sing one and, 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 and move up to the other step. Uh But I like to think of them as the way we've been sort of talking about them, as the songs that the people sang as they walked on their way to the festivals. That's the way I like to imagine them being used. They're really just a hymn book for pilgrims traveling on their way to meet with God. And on their way to meet with him, they pull out this hymn book that forms them into their self-understanding as a people who belong to God. And all that that entails. A people who belong to God, who he's committed to take care of. Who he's committed to be with and to never leave and to care for. One of the things that's so striking about these psalms is that they don't just help people move geographically in their journey from their home to the temple. There's a much deeper journey going on here. There is the geographical journey. But the deeper journey that's going on is the journey in all of these psalms from doubt to trust, from fear and anxiety to hope and faith. And the way that the psalms are constructed assumes, assumes a starting point of doubt and fear and anxiety for humans. Notice this with me because I think it's very important I think oftentimes people are really hard on themselves for not being full of faith all the time, for not being full of trust all the time. They're they're ashamed that they often start in this place like fish up in the air and filled with anxiety. But all of these Psalms start with the assumption that that's where human beings just begin, is in this place of fear and anxiety. And the Psalms assume that people need to be Pilgrims need to be brought along in a journey. I love it. And others have loved these Psalms because, because they meet us where we are, not where our ideal self aspires that we would be. They meet us where we are and where we actually live. And it seems that in Psalm 125 in particular, the people are facing a challenge that has really knocked, themself, knocked them off center. Um, and we get a little bit of a hint about the sort of challenge they're facing in verse three, where it says, for the scepter of, the wick- of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Now, many writers have speculated about what the particular background of this psalm might be. And several have put forth that perhaps it was the time of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, that would make the most plausible background. We're not going to go into too much detail here, but essentially, this is a time when God's people were in the land that God had promised to them, but they didn't have political independence. They had overlords that were not committed to their well-being, and so they felt profoundly insecure. Even though they were home, they still felt very insecure because of wicked authority that was sort of over them and had so much control over their In a sense, it really doesn't matter exactly what the people in this psalm are facing because the reality is is that every generation of believers faces the challenge of living under authority that is beyond their control. Whether it's parents who are absent or negligent, whether it's terrible boss, whether it's unreliable or unwise political leadership, every generation, and of course some far more than others, right? Every generation experiences the feeling of powerlessness and unsteadiness that living under someone else's authority who you know doesn't have your well-being at heart, every generation experiences what that's like. At best, at best these authorities are indifferent to you and to your needs right? But at worst, they want to kill you, right? It's all along the spectrum. And we all, personally, every day, encounter all kinds of circumstances that knock us off center, that remind us that we are not in control, remind us that we are vulnerable, remind us that we need protection, And safety. And it is to those made shaky and unsteady by the fear of what might lurk around the corner that the psalmist says, Sing with me. Come on, come sing with me. And as you sing on your way to meet with God, as we go up to Jerusalem together, look at the scene before you. Do you see Mount Zion? As we approach it, do you see Mount Zion that stands for the hopes and the dreams of the people of God? Mount Zion tall, Mount Zion strong, Mount Zion steady, Mount Zion standing unmoved as all the political winds blow around it and everything changes around it. The psalmist says anyone who puts their trust in the Lord will take on Mount Zion-like steadiness. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, which abides forever. I think it's so interesting that when the psalmist thinks about anxious children of God and what they need, and when Jesus thinks about anxious children of God and what they need, Neither one of those, the psalmist nor Jesus, neither one of them says, you know what you should do? You should look deep inside. You should go inside your head and you should rationalize away your fear and anxiety. You should, make it a, you should think it away, right? Or you should go deep in your heart, depending upon what Enneagram type you are. You should go deep in your heart. And in your heart, you'll find a steadiness right? Go deep in there. Find it. There's a steadiness there. No, the psalmist and Jesus both, when when trying to teach people how to be free and walk out of anxiety, call them to look at the physical world, right? Look at an example in creation. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Look at the mountains calling us up out of all of the storm of our own internal narratives and stories around all the things that could possibly go wrong, calls us out of all the negative thoughts and all of those things and says, no, 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 no. You need something more permanent to ground it. Because inside your storm, you need to be grounded in something else. So Jesus says, look at the birds. (laughs) They don't store up. They don't have... 401ks? Look at the flowers. Look at how beautifully dressed they are. Like, they didn't do that for themselves, right? The psalmist says, Look at the mountain. Because when we go internal, often all we find is a storm, of fear, stories of uncertainty, stories that most of the time we've created, right? About how God is not going to provide. And the psalmist and Christ both call us out and say, no, look at how God is already providing in the natural world. And that's who he is to you. That's how he will care for you. When I hear this, um, this sort of thing that happens, that the psalmist says that those who trust in the Lord like take on a conferred sort of steadiness, right, from God. It makes me think of Second Peter, the beginning of Second Peter, um, where Peter is talking to a bunch of young Christians who are unsure of their own calling and their election, right? They're, they're kind of afraid that maybe I'm not called. Maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not part of God's family. And, and Peter says this, I love, I love it. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, listen to this, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. What a mystery that is. This idea that through God's power in Christ, we might be able to participate in the divine nature. It's so wondrous that it's hard to get our minds around it, right? Of course, this doesn't mean that we become divine, but it does mean that through his divine power, we can participate in the elements of his divine life. We can participate in his character. We who are unsteady through faith can participate in his steadiness. We can take it on. We can join into it. It's so interesting to hear in the New Testament the same sort of echo of what's happening here in Psalm 125. So going back to the psalm we're singing in Psalm 125, we can see how the posture of trust it becomes the doorway into the participation in steadiness, the unshakableness of God himself. When we trust him, we become steady like him, unshakable like him. Have you ever met anybody? Have you, ever, have you been around anybody who's like this? I have this one very powerful memory. I was graduating from Bible college, and I I I was you know 20 years old, um, and I was incredibly freaked out because I didn't know what was next. Um, I I knew I was going to go on and do a degree, but I just I didn't quite know what was going on next with my life, and I was really sad because I was leaving all my friends that I'd made in Bible college, and it was this you know, powerful spiritual experience. And I'm like, how am I going to now live in the real world? Which are all questions they should ask about Bible colleges, by the way. And so, um, you know, I'm like, how is it now that I'm going to live in the real world? And I remember after graduation, standing out in front of the, of the building where, we, where we'd gone to graduation, and we were all wearing like our caps and gowns. And there was this, there was this older woman, um, who's probably like my age now, um, who was there. And I, honestly, I can't even remember her name. Um, but I walked up to her and I remember, and she was like, hey, she was like, congratulations. And I said, I said, yeah, I'm like really super freaked out um, because I don't know what I'm doing. And like, I just started like narrating all my anxiety to her. And she looked at me, and I'll never forget it. She looked me square in the eye, and she said, he has never forsaken me up until this point, and he's not going to forsake me now. He will not forsake me now. I don't think she had any more clarity about her next steps than I did. But what she did have was a life of experience of putting her trust in God and the steadiness and the unshakableness that comes through participating in his steadiness and his unshakableness. So that in that moment, she was able to draw upon the resources of the spirit and call them up and say, in this moment that should feel so scary, I'm not afraid." because I put my trust in him. I put my trust in him. The psalmist uh, then moves on to the next point as we're making this journey together. First thing they see is Mount Zion. Um, And then he moves on to the next point in the the horizon, the, the hills sort of surrounding Jerusalem. And he says, sing with me and look at these hills. Look at these hills. Let's read it together. He says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Essentially, the psalmist is saying this. I want you to look at the way these hills provide a natural fortress around the city of Jerusalem. It's a natural protection that is better than they could have ever built for themselves. And as you sing about that, know that the God who planted This city and this place also surrounds you today. And just as Jerusalem is protected, so you are protected. I recently, um, at work, I've been working on a study. Some of you participated in some of the test study that we did around young people who are particularly wise with money in in their 20s and up from like 22 to 28 and we I, we spoke to some of you all um, uh, as sort of test interviews, but then we went out and interviewed a bunch. My team went out and interviewed a bunch of people all across the country, talking to them, and we built a journey, sort of the what it looks like for young people to be wise with money in this stage of their life. And my team came back after they did a bunch of interviews, um, and they came back and they said, "It's just so interesting what we're finding." And I was like, "What's what's what's like really interesting?" And it was really striking because. What was striking to me was some of the numbers that they told me about some of these people that are really, young people that are really wise with money, about some of the numbers that they have in their bank account. Like, it's just sort of striking, like there's these young people who have really, really seem to have it all together financially with, like, really large savings in their, in their bank account. And they said, the interesting thing about it, though, is that when we got to the end of their story... Um, we would start asking them about their own response and their own sort of relationship to money. And we'd ask them about sort of their anxiety levels. And almost all of these young people who have been incredibly wise with money and who have all of this money stored away, much more than, than most of their peers, almost all of them are still scared to death about their financial situation. Almost all of them. And it became abundantly clear like sort of in this research, right, that it really doesn't matter how much you have stored away if you don't trust the Lord. If you don't know that he's the one that surrounds you. The psalmist is telling this to these children of God because he knows that this is the only thing God's provision is really the only thing that will bring us a true sense of safety and security in this world. And anything else, anything else crumbles under the weight of our fears and our anxiety. Anything other than His provision crumbles under that weight. The next thing the psalmist does is he moves on. Um, and I can almost hear uh, the cynics in this, in this crowd of pilgrims, right, who say, who say to the psalmist, yeah, okay, thank you so much, Mount Zion. Yes, hills around. Yes, I, I'm provided for. But what you don't understand is that um, is, it's so hard to be steady when so much is out of our control. There is systemic structural injustice. It's embedded and ingrained in the power structures that we live in. And that is what I'm focused on. That's what makes me afraid. The psalmist anticipates this fear inside of us. And he gives a promise. He says this, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. The word to focus there, the word to focus on there is the word rest. The word to focus on there is the word rest. The promise is not that the hand of the wicked, the scepter of wickedness, will never appear in the land of the righteous. It's just that God will not allow it to rest there unchecked. God will not allow it to rest there unchecked. Why? Why? so that the righteous won't stretch out their hands and do wrong. You see what he's saying here? The psalmist is saying, look, when you're in the land and you've got this fear of oppression and you're living under all of this oppression, if you don't have, if you don't have confidence that one day this oppression will, be, that will abate and God will deliver from this oppression, he will not allow it to rest here forever, you, as God's people, are going to be tempted to do wrong to try to uproot wickedness, to try to unseat injustice. You will get to your breaking point. You will finally get to the point when you stare at the injustice, you'll stare at it long enough and you'll say, I have to do something. And you will respond to wickedness with wickedness. You'll respond to violence with violence. And I don't want you to do that because God's people don't do that. When I think about this, this promise, this promise that, that the scepter of wickedness will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, this is the promise that enabled people like Dr. King, that enabled people like John Perkins, people that have faced incredible injustice over the course of their lives, to face and stare down that injustice with nonviolence, to face and stare down, to not take up wickedness in their own hands in order to engage wickedness in the place where they were living. God says, the psalmist says, in this place of unsteadiness and fear, if you put your trust in the Lord, you will be steady, you will stand out as steady you will know you can rest secure, not live out of an anxious place, but you can live out of a a non-anxious presence knowing that the Lord surrounds you and watches over you. And even though you might be tempted, on the days when you might be tempted to address wickedness with wickedness, remember, the Lord will not allow the scepter of wickedness to rest on the land forever. He will deliver his people so you can engage in works of justice in righteous ways, not taking up anger, not taking up violence, not taking up cynicism or fear or manipulation, all of the tools that we use to address wickedness with wickedness. You can lay those aside and go into the world as people of peace, showing a different way because you have the confidence that the Lord will not allow the scepter of wickedness to rest upon the land. He will deliver. This morning, let's join our hearts. I invite you. I invite you to join your hearts to the hearts of the people of God in this psalm to begin in a place of anxiety and fear and move, move toward God and his provision and care for them so that they become his steady people in an unsteady world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.